Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 24. Here is what we are doing as a congregation. We teach verse by verse through the Word of God because the Word of God is how we get to know our God. It's what He uses to speak to us and lead us and transform us. I, I passionately love the Word of God. This is another one of those chapters that, you know, I just read in the surface and kind of prepare a long term in advance, and I know that this chapter's coming up. It's another experience in David's life. It's like, Lord, what, how am I going to teach that? I mean, seriously, I mean, how many mess-ups do we need to go through in David's life? Well, how many mess-ups do you have in your own life? This morning's message is titled, Folly. It is another weird chapter in the Word of God, and when we read through it, I think you'll agree with me in the weirdness. But the major idea, when we sit in God's Word, He always leads us to hope. He always brings us back to Himself, and that's where we're going to be directed this morning. But we're going to sit in the midst of a cultural folly. We're going to sit in the midst of confusion. And here's another major idea when we study God's Word. You can't study just one section or one chapter and think that you've got something figured out. Because sometimes when you get too close into the weeds and you forget the forest, you can walk out of a, a section of God's Word with a very false idea about God, and a false idea about God is an idol. So this is one of those other things. We'll pull in other chapters in the Bible to give us clarity and understanding. But we're going to read through 2 Samuel 24. We are finishing uh, 2 Samuel this morning. And honestly, this is a, even in this chapter, it's going to set us up for, we're going to start the Gospel of Matthew next week. And as we sit in David imaging for us, the Messiah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, and then we get, begin Matthew next week, which defines Jesus as the Son of David. Um, it's going to be very great connections for us to have so recently been in David's life, now that we go sit in Jesus's life in the gospel, it brings a ton of clarity in regards to his nature, his character, who it is that he is, what it is that he's done, and what it is that he's going to do, which is awesome. Second Samuel 24, we're going to read the whole chapter. It says, again, 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 the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all, this, all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And when Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my Lord the King see it. But why? Why does my Lord the King desire this thing? Nevertheless, the King's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the King to count the people of Israel." And they crossed over the Jordan and encamped in Aror on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, towards Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Taptim Hodshi. And they came to Dan Yan around and around to Sidon. Then they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went to the south 
as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone throughout all the land, again, this is like a counterclockwise route through the land. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart condemned him after he numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said, Shall seven, some translations say three, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you, or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the, uh, from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Uh, First Chronicles says Ornan is his name. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Araunna looked and saw the king and his servant coming toward him. So Araunna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Araunna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Araunna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Araunah has given to the king. And Araunah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Araunah, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. You want to teach it? I love saying that in the Old Testament because 
It's not easy. All the way back to verse 1. What does it say? It says that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David to say to them, Go, number Israel and Judah. So, when you read this chapter, just skipping along the surface, it looks like God is mad at the nation of Israel. Because God is mad at the nation of Israel, he goes and he moves David's heart. To move means to incite, to persuade, to entice. He entices David's heart to sin by doing the census, by numbering the people, And it seems like the purpose, God is mad, so because of sin, so I'm going to cause David to sin further so that I can kill 70,000 people. And then the weird spiritual scene that happens, and here's the confession, and here's the altar, here's the sacrifice, and now God's going to uh, not destroy anymore. Is that what you read across the surface? I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? It's, It's a weird chapter. So here is a little bit of clarity. So 1 Chronicles 21 is the parallel passage to this. And in 1 Chronicles, it tells us that Satan, the adversary, is the one who moves David's heart. So when I read this title, this first verse in 2 Samuel, to me, it, sound, it seems like it's a title. It's, a, it's God is once again... Uh, angry at the sin of the nation through David and what the people have been involved in. And it's a title for the section that we're reading underneath it. So it's not God is already mad and here's God enticing David to sin and the culture to sin so that God can now execute judgment. If God is already mad because of sin, he already has the right and authority to judge that sin, right? He doesn't need David to sin any further to execute a judgment. So I sit in this as I read through this text that it is a definition of the chapter that we're reading. Once again, here is another circumstance that caused God's anger to be aroused against the nation, and underneath it we have the description. But the he there is that God is the one who entices us and persuades us and baits us to sin, or is it Satan? So this is one of the, those sections. If you only read this chapter, you could have a very corrupted view of the nature and character of God. The word of God is very clear. God does not tempt us to sin. God very clearly tests us. He tests our faith, and he repeatedly puts us into a position where he's asking us the question, are you going to trust me? Are you going to believe me? Are you going to keep following me? He puts us into those circumstances. Word of God is very consistent. The tempter, the adversary, the devil, he is the one who enters into our lives with God's permission, and he is the one that is enticing us, persuading us, and tempting us to sin. A great, if you have never read through the book of Job, this would be a great compliment to this passage and this idea because this is the only time where we see the Satan, the adversary, go before God and question God, question Job and his righteousness and his relationship with God. And we watch God stand back and allow Satan to do some of what Satan wants to do in Job's life, but God gives Satan very clear parameters. You can do this, but you can't do that. So again, when you read through this section in this chapter that we just read, there are very clear times where God will stand back and he will allow us to be tempted by Satan. 
And that, to me, is my understanding of what's going on in David's heart in this moment. But then again, you got to sit in just the circumstance. All right, so why is counting the people a sin? Why is this something that makes God angry? What do we do in our culture? Every 10 years, we have a census, right? So we're numbering the people. So is God angry at our nation for numbering the people every 10 years? And you have to sit in what, what is the historical word of God? What is David doing by counting the people and what's going on? So in Exodus chapter 30, God gives the instruction. When you number the people, when you take a census, there is an atonement. There's a price that has to be paid. So we sit in the book of Numbers. It's dealing with two different numbers. The people are numbered when they leave Egypt, when God delivers them, and they're once again numbered before they go into the promised land. That numbering was directed by God, and when the nation was numbered, there was a cost for the people. They had to redeem themselves. They had to pay a price, and that price was given over to the service of God's temple. And the whole thought process behind that is, again, the numbering is occurring for an understanding and exposure of what God has been doing in the culture in those last 40 years, but the numbering is not so that the nation of Israel could be proud in regards to their number. God gave a promise to Abraham, I will make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore or as numerous as the stars in the heaven. Is that a lot? So the numbering of the people, there's one side of it. Well, let's see if God is fulfilling his promises or not and going and having a, a literal counting. And does the number of the nation of Israel line up with the number of the sand on the seashore? And that's why Joab is saying, you know, may God increase the number of our people a hundred times and let your eyes see that happen. But what you're doing, it is, it's sin because you're standing in rebellion against God. And this is the major idea. David is numbering the people because it's own, his own personal pride and it's his own personal glory. He wants to know the number of his people, his strength, the kingdom that he's built, it's a, it, the heart focuses on him. It has nothing to do with his relationship in the Lord. This has nothing to do with like, how our government is going to conduct a census. There's a lot of good and practical reasons to know how many people live where, all the services that need to be provided for the from the government. There's, there's a lot of justifiable reasons to do it. But David's reason is solely based upon himself. And that's why here is Satan is the one that is being given permission by God to come into David's life and to start whispering about David's glory. Look at everything that you have built. Look at the people that you rule over. Look at all the trials that you have survived and look at the authority that you have in your kingdom, David, rather than who is David really? Called and appointed by the Lord to be a shepherd, to be a servant. We can sit in this idea. I mean, just pull this into our own American context. How many, when you start talking to somebody about where you attend church, I guarantee if it's not the first question, it's probably the second question, how many people? As a, when people find out that I'm a pastor, that uh, first question in the context, where'd you go to school? Because they want to know what my doctrine is. The second question is, how big is your church? Everybody recognize this? Why? Why, why the question? 
The question is, is because our, our country puts so much emphasis on numbers, and numbers define success. You step back about 50 years in our culture, there were only a handful of mega churches in our culture and our context. The mega church movement, as it's defined, and, and the reasons why and what the Lord has done, and again, this isn't throwing stones at the size of congregations at all. All of them fulfill their place in the role of God in the community. There's pros and cons to big churches and small churches. It does not matter. But our culture puts a tremendous amount of emphasis upon the number of backsides in your seats defines how it defines your worth. It defines your identity. It defines uh, the effectiveness of your ministry. It's all of this business metrics. And what does that put the attention on? It puts the attention on the leadership, whether it's pastoral-driven, whether it's elder-driven. It puts the, the, all the glory on the effectiveness of the people in the ministry of the community rather than who adds to the church. The book of Acts is really clear. God is the one who adds to his family. We were just seeing it a moment ago. Are you a child of God? If you're a child of God, you've expressed faith in Jesus Christ. You are no longer a slave in a possession of anything. You've been chosen and selected by him, and he has brought you to himself. He's the one that has done it all. And then when we sit in our little church fights and those kinds of things, is this, is our congregation in the midst of the body of Christ in the greater Atlanta area? right? We're, we're part of the whole body of Christ. We're one part of that membership in this area. God has called us and he's appointed us. And this is our community where we're gathering together to worship his name, to fellowship with him, to fellowship with one another, to do what it is that he's directing us to do, not in competition with the churches in the community, but in, uh, in uh, what's the right word? Not competition, but um, concert. Perfect. For doing it together. It's, it's all his church, and regardless of the size of one congregation over another, it's all flesh. That's what's being exposed here. David and counting the people, it's all flesh. How strong is his military? That's what he is counting. Look at my might, look at my strength, look at how I have subdued the people around me. And Joab Violent Joab is the one that's trying to stand in David's life as the voice of reason. We watch David's, or Joab sin multiple times in this narrative, and he's the one that's standing as the voice of reason in David's life. His other commanders are standing, attempting to be a voice of reason to David, but whose voice is David choosing to listen to? The king was supposed to write his own copy of the word of God. He knows exactly the words of Moses. He knows God's instructions in regards to a census and numbering. He knows the argument of his commanders of, hey, do not do this. Don't sin against the people. And in David's mind and in his heart and his foolishness, his folly in the moment, he's choosing to listen to his own narrative. We don't know why he's stubborn and heading in this direction, but it's not because God is forcing him to move down this road. It's because he's choosing to listen to a false voice and he's going down this road. And then that road has consequences, right? So David's win words win. They prevail over everybody's arguments. I'm the king. This is what I want. Do what I tell you to do. 
and the people go and do it. You sit in, again, 1 Chronicles 21, when Joab comes back and gives David the number, it says very clearly that, David, that Joab did not give David the full number. He withheld the number of the Benjamites. He withheld the number of the Levites because Joab, this was offensive to Joab, and Joab's trying to mitigate that. I am accountable to God, and I'm also accountable to my king, and here's the number, but there's some, again, it's all kinds of issues. So after nine months, this is, this is, again, this is just like David sitting with Bathsheba and Uriah. That whole scene was an extended period of time in David's life. This is another extended period of time in David's life where he's stubborn, stubbornly going down a path he ought not until the moment of what happens. We're told here that David's heart's con- heart condemned him. The word for condemnation, it's the idea of under judgment, you have been judged. The word here is it's heart, his heart is striking him. He's convicted of his sin. And what does David do? He goes to God in confession. I have sinned greatly. I missed the mark, not by a little bit, not by a nudge. David's saying, Lord, I missed your command greatly, and it was a choice, and I willingly did it, and I willingly forced others to come along this path with me, and the whole nation is guilty because of what I chose to do. But in this, it's, I've sinned greatly. His heart is striking him in in conviction, but now he's asking God to take away his crime. And again, this is a The iniquity in the Bible, the word, it focuses on the guilt and the punishment of sin. God, I'm looking to you. I am guilty. I have missed greatly. I'm abiding in this conviction, but I'm asking that you would remove this guilt and this punishment from me. But what does God do? What does God do in your life? As often as you confess your sins in the name of Jesus, and you come before the Father, we are told he is faithful and he is just, he is right to forgive us of all of our sins. Now that means we remain in that fellowship and that relationship with the Lord, but that doesn't always mean that he frees us from consequences. Sometimes he absolutely frees us from the consequences, the effects of our sin, and praise God that he does that. Other times, it's you've made a mistake, you've made your bed, now you've got to lie in it kind of attitude. There are circumstances of things that you've done in the past that do have weight in your life today, but those things in your past, they do not own you, they do not define you, you are no longer a child of sin, you're not a child of fear, you're not a child of wrath, you're not a child of the devil through faith in Jesus Christ, you are now this child of God and cleansed and holy and protected and provided for and seen and secure. Does that make sense? But here in this circumstance, God is going to judge the entire nation righteously for their sin. David led in it. The culture participated in it. And now God comes to David through the voice of a prophet, and I'm giving you some options. And here's the options. One, do you want multiple years of famine? Two, do you want a few months of war? Or three, do you want three days of a plague? And what would you choose? And here's, here's the, 
repentance of David in the moment. If David chooses three to seven years, depending on the number of famine, is a famine going to affect the king? Is David's table ever going to lack food as king in a famine? No. As king, he controls the food supply. He's going to have government officials controlling the food supply, distributing it as needed and selling it as needed. His table would never be empty. So if David were selfish in this moment, I could handle a famine. It's going to suck for the people, but I could handle it. In war, David has already been defined in, in context where he is in his life. He's too old to go out to battle. His soldiers, his generals won't let him go out to battle because he'll be an easy target to pick off. So even if he was being pursued by the enemy, the people, the soldiers, the military, they're going to protect the king. David would be kept safe in that scenario. But still, both of those scenarios, David recognizes that he's placing himself into the hand of another human being or a group of people. And this is one of the I think the incredible freedoms that we have in Jesus is nobody grips you. Nobody owns you. You're not anybody's slave. You are not anybody's property. You are the Lord's and the Lord's alone. And this is David's heart is expressing, I'm in great distress. He feels troubled on the inside. He is under the conviction of that sin and he's in the repentance and he's seeking the Lord for cleansing and forgiveness. And God has given him the answer and the answer of the three options that he has, he doesn't like, is there an option four, please, right? But he says, let us be placed, all of us, not just him, but the whole culture, let us be placed into the hand of God. Now, again, pull this into our context. We all just lived through the experience of COVID, a plague going around globally. And the idea of a plague, especially like in something like COVID, it was seemingly extremely random. You didn't know who was going to get sick and who wasn't going to get sick. If you got sick, you didn't know if it was going to be really easy. Gee, my nose is running or you're going to drop dead or something in between, right? It was, it was a plague, a disease, and you had absolutely no control over it. Oh, you could mitigate it a little bit, wear a mask, social distance, get your vaccine, all these different things that we were being instructed and in. here's what you can do to not get sick. Or if you do get sick, here's the treatments that you have. But again, that's the randomness of this plague where here is a disease and we're not told what it is, but we're to what we are told in the imagery that we're given is a very cosmic and supernatural idea of here is an angel in 1 Chronicles 21. Again, great to go read through that also. We're told that this angel has a sword drawn in his hand and that this angel is going throughout all the land of Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south and 70,000 men are executed through this plague. Are you comfortable? How, did, how were the, the 70,000 men chosen? Were they 70,000 sinners? Were there 20,000 dirtbags and 50,000 righteous men? Like, we're not told the mix of their hearts. We're not told the consequent, were they married, were they unmarried? You know, we're not given any context of 70,000 souls that are righteously executed by the eternal God for the sin of David and for the sin of the culture. Justly, 
righteously, supernaturally, by what we're told is this angel. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, more often than not, it's a capital A, not a lowercase a. And a capital A, angel of the Lord, in the Bible, best context is to go into the book of Joshua. Joshua bows down before this angel as the commander of the Lord's army. And this angel receives Joshua's worship. That means that angel is God. That means that angel is a is a image, a theophany, an exposure of here is God clothing himself in flesh in the Old Testament, making himself seen, making himself known. There is the almighty God. So this isn't God just dispatching an angel to go and perform this. It seems it's the father's dispatched the son to go and perform this judgment. It's the same scenario and the same scene, the destroying one that we see in Exodus chapter 12. Is that, is that like a satanic, bad, demonic angel that is killing people, that is killing the firstborn? Or here is the Almighty, the Creator, coming and executing a judgment upon the firstborn. I lean towards the second side. In this passage, again, I lean towards that this is the angel of the Lord with a capital A. And the imagery and why, to me, this, this leads into that imagery and what the word of God has to convey from Genesis to Revelation, what David's life has to convey an image to us as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the king, is it's all pointing us to Jesus himself. Because again, if you sit in this scenario where here is a sin, and here is a judgment, and here is the punishment and judgment being executed upon his people, God is in action in it all. He's not just standing back. He is very involved in these behaviors and what is going on in the context. And as he makes himself visible and he makes himself seen to David and to others, it's in this around us threshing floor. So the city of David, if you know, if you have a Bible map, you can Google this. The city of David is on the southern end of what we define as the Temple Mount today. And where the Temple Mount is to the north, this is where that threshing floor was. So where the temple gets built, so this, uh, this chapter leads, again, at the end of Chronicles, you have all of the... Um, the description and the instruction of David gathering for the building of the temple, his instructions to his son Samuel for that building. And then as you get into 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you see that construction. So in the timeline, that is the, the context of what's being described is pointing to the building of that place. The building of that place is going to occur where David builds this altar. Again, in this altar, any altar you see that's constructed in the Old Testament, there is a recognition between that individual and that individual's relationship with God. And David is there as an individual. He's also there as king. He is also there as the anointed one who is building this altar as he's just had an image and a visual unveiling of the true anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. Does this all make sense in its imagery? 
Because again, this is all going to flow to where we're going to go in the New Testament, watching Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. But in this scene here, David is coming to Arauna. So this man is a Jebusite. He is not a believer in Yahweh. When he's looking in Chronicles, again, this guy sees the angel of the Lord. He's threshing his, uh, his wheat, his crop with his kids. And he sees the angel of the Lord and pretty much says, well, that's nice. And he goes back to his threshing his wheat. David, the culture, sees the angel of the Lord, same thing. He has that instruction from the prophet of the Lord. This is the instruction. This is what you're to go build and go do and go sacrifice and restore the relationship. So David goes to this guy, has the conversation. The guy's looking at David saying, your God is the one that's doing all of this. I'll freely give because you're the king. You come take whatever you want from me. I'm not going to stand in your way is this guy's attitude. But David's attitude is, no, I'm going to buy it. Because that which I am going to sacrifice, that's what, that which I'm going to offer to the Lord, it's not going to be your oxen that you've given to me, and then I'm going to sacrifice your oxen. That's your sacrifice. I'm not going to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing, is this illustration in this imagery. But in this, David comes, he buys this whole area. That area becomes where the temple is going to be built. Ultimately, that's pointing us to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and all of the imagery that is going on there. But at the end of this, again, this, this imagery, there's, there's, a couple, there's a few ideas that we're going to set, sit in at the end of this. And one of them comes out of verse 23, where it's this around us saying to David, may the Lord your God accept you. This idea for acceptance, it comes up in our culture all the time. You need to accept everybody regardless of whatever definitions they have for their life, for their culture, for the world. There's a demand to be accepted. You want to be accepted. You want to be accepted by your family. You want to be accepted by your peers, your congregation, your culture. We don't want to be cast out and rejected. We have this longing to be accepted. It's just, it's a phrase that stands out because here's an unbeliever telling David, may you find acceptance in your God. And again, he, the context is, here is sin, and you, David, through doing your sacrifice and your prayer, you are going to make yourself right and accepted in your God's eyes through your behaviors. And again, that, that to me is a very, um, that is a, as a believer, if that is our perspective, it's a very young and immature perspective in regards to who Jesus is and what it is that he's done. As an unbeliever, there's many in this world who believe that you are accepted by a deity based upon your behavior. It's your works, it's your actions, it's your sacrifices, it's what you paid, it's at your cost, it's all about you. And if you do what's right before your God, then your God will accept you. Do you understand that narrative? Total stark contrast to the narrative of the gospel. Because again, in all of this, God is giving pictures and illustration and understanding. It is not the sacrifice of this animal on this altar that David built that forgave David of his sin. 
Old Testament is looking forward to the sacrifice of the Messiah. All you have to do is sit in Isaiah 52 and 53. That sacrifice of the servant of the Lord is what removes sin from humanity. The sacrifice that David is going through, it's, it's just like us offering the sacrifice of praise, coming to God in prayer. It's an act of faith. And in our acts of faith requires action. You had to drive yourself here this morning. We make financial contributions. We make physical contributions. As a community, you are offering to the Lord those things which cost you something. You could choose to spend all of those categories elsewhere. But there is a cost in regards to that relationship with the Lord. But your forgiveness, your cleansing, the putting away of your sin... Your acceptance of you by your God is based upon the sacrifice of the Son of God and the Son of God alone. And again, this, this imagery, and again, here you have Jesus standing there as the angel of the Lord directing this sacrifice. Every single sacrifice of the Old Testament is pointing to his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And it is fabulous imagery. And now sitting in David's language of conveying to this man of, you can't give me your stuff. I'm going to buy it. It's going to be mine, and I am going to offer it to the Lord according to the instructions that he's given to me. Do you understand that? Now in the New Testament, this whole idea comes up in multiple places, but it's called the cost of discipleship. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ free? Is there anything that you have to do to have that relationship with the Lord. We're told that the only thing is faith. Do you believe? Do you know? Do you understand? All of the, pro- not, and, not, and it's not just all. We grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and his promises. But it's this knowledge and this idea that, all right, I have been created. I am a creature. I am responsible to the being who created the heavens and the earth. I know that I'm broken I'm off. You've sat in that conviction like David. Every single one of you, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you know the emotion of conviction. I was an idiot, right? That's what I did foolishly. And you use your own words to me, Blake, you're an idiot. I I use a lot of times, I use the word stupid, ignorant, I was a wanderer. You know, these are labels that I put upon my old self and my old behaviors as I have conversations with myself. But so many times I did foolishly. And God brought about conviction. There's so many times in my life now I'm thinking foolishly. I have the Holy Spirit within me that is convicting me challenging me. And I go and just offer that sacrifice of praise and prayer. Lord, cleanse me. Be merciful to me. Take away from me the punishment that I deserve, that mercy. Give to me. Be gracious to me because I know that you're a gracious God. Give to me that which I know that I don't deserve is this emotion. Do you recognize these emotions? But again, in the New Testament, it's that going to God, you have that freedom in Christ. We talked about it earlier as we were worshiping. You have that freedom to go enter into the Holy of Holies, all this imagery of the temple. You're entering in through the veil of Jesus' body, and you are welcome to the throne of the 
being who created the heavens and the earth. And everybody is invited freely through faith in Jesus Christ. It is awesome. But what does Jesus demand of you to have that access? It's faith is what he demands. But what are the demands of faith? God looks at us and he says, I have given everything. I have given you my all. When he sits in the word of God, what is it that he's done? He is a being who has existed for all eternity. Never created. Never not. He is the self-existent one. And this self-existent one chose to make. And what he chose to make, the ultimate, the pinnacle of that, the focus of that is human beings in his likeness, in his image, male and female. You are the focus of his creation. He has given you himself. I am making you after my likeness because I want to share myself is ultimately his goal. And he has done everything in to give us his life. Does that, I mean, that's the whole conveyance of the gospel of the word of God from beginning to end. We are told that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are now co-heirs. That means all that Jesus is, all that Jesus has is yours. And not just yours, but ours, because there is a oneness. He has given to us all that he is. Is God generous? Incredibly so. And in the image of who he is, he tells us to turn around and to image himself back to him. God has given us all that he is. The demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you to die to yourself daily. All that you are, all that you want, all that you think, take up your cross, your daily death, and follow after him. He asks, he has promised, I have given you all of me. And when he turns around and his instruction to us ultimately is, I am asking for all of you. And it's not, I have to give all of me and all that I have to get God. There is a growth and a maturity of that. When we sing, I surrender all, does anybody surrender all? No, we always hold back. We're always dealing and battling with our flesh. God is always causing us to grow and mature in our faith in him, in our trust in him. Great faith in the New Testament is defined by those individuals who literally let go of all and say, God, I trust you. Here I am giving my all. And it's not all of my stuff. It's all of my heart. You've given me life. You have given me your life, which is the definition of life. You have given me all that you are. Any roadblocks I have in my life, they're not because of the world. They're not because of the devil. They're because of my own flesh. I allow myself to be moved, to be enticed, and to be persuaded by the reasonable arguments of the culture, the reasonable arguments of the devil. God says, don't do that. Don't give parts of your heart to these other voices. Give all of your ear, give all of your mind, give all of your heart, give all that you are to me. And God will faithfully hold on to you and keep you in that response.
And again, you look, you look at the ultimate conclusion of life. When we are going to stand face to face with God, we are told that we are going to be recreated fully in his image. All that he is, we will be. Not God, right? But one with him. He will give us all that he is for all eternity. And we will, together, we will image him back to himself in perfect unity and perfect oneness for all of eternity. You sit in what David is doing, it's all an image for that ultimate future goal. All of David's life, worship team, come on up. All of David's life as we've sat here and looked at this definition of here are the kingdoms of the world and their processes and their ways and their ideas. Here was this request of this nation for a king to be like others, but God gave them a king to be an image of that ultimate king of himself. He is our king. He is the one that rules us. He is the one who leads us. He is the one who has sacrificed himself as that substitution so that our fellowship could be restored. You look at David. Is it David himself or did he command a bunch of other people to do this work for him? My, my, my thoughts and just knowing David, I think he's the one that stacked the stones for this altar. I think those, I think those animals, those oxen and the wood of the, the, the threshing uh, implements that he purchased from this Jebusite, my understanding is that, you know, David bought that. Those were his I'm sure others helped in the slaughter process and the organization of this sacrifice. But we're told through this burnt offering that that is that imagery of that which covers and atones for and removes sin. And the peace offering is that which restores fellowship with his almighty God. Both of those offerings, both of those sacrifices, both of those ideas we see in Christ. So as we turn our attention, we're going to we're going to worship God, come and grab communion. And again, this is uh, communion is so important for us to remember the nature and character of our God, what it is that He has done for us. Conviction that you may be sitting in in the moment where you need to enter in conviction. Maybe you just need to continue to offer God thanks and praise for who He is and what He's done. I've had a fabulous morning. My worship this morning was nothing but pouring out gratitude, and I'm going to keep doing the same. But come up, grab communion, hold on to it, and we'll take it together as we continue to worship our God.